The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Well, if you guys uh, have your Bibles, we're going to get right to work. Mark chapter 14. Hope you guys came ready and excited to dig into the Word of God. Let's pray. Can you guys hear me okay? Everybody good? Aaron, you good back there? Okay, cool. Oh, Father, uh, we thank you so much tonight, Lord, for heritage, for this body, this family, God, uh, that um, we have the privilege of being able to come together as a family uh, centered around your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I thank you tonight for the scriptures, for the way that you speak to us through the scriptures, Lord. Um, I thank you, Father, for the reality, the truth of what we're going to look at tonight, God. Um, I pray that you would be glorified through this, Jesus. I pray that through my weakness, Lord, through my insecurities, Lord, through my uh, even feeling tonight, Lord, like I, like I can't deliver this, Lord, that your power would be made great through my weakness tonight, God. I pray that you would, Holy Spirit, come into this room, awaken our hearts, awaken our minds to hear and to be able to understand the truth of your word, uh, Jesus, tonight. We pray that in your precious name. All God's people said, amen. amen. Okay. Mark chapter 14. So what we're going to talk about tonight, I'm going to move this so I can move around. Um, what we're going to talk about tonight is going to be seemingly one of those passages in scriptures that you approach and at first seem kind of depressing. <laughs> you first look at it and it's like, wow, that's really kind of a bummer uh, text. And when I first looked at it, I'm like, man, that's just, what am I going to say about that? That's encouraging. Um, but what I actually found as I studied it and pressed into this text was that it's actually one of the most encouraging texts that I've actually ever been able to teach on. Um, what seemingly at first seemed to be one of the most depressing texts actually has proved to be one of the most encouraging texts. So I'm excited to share that with you guys tonight. Tonight we get to talk about a reality of something that we all face in life, something that we all understand probably intricately and that we all experience. Probably a lot of you have experienced it today um, and have been struggling with it today. Uh, and that is the reality of our own weakness Anybody in here ever been faced with or had to uh, be reminded of constantly uh, of your own weakness? <laughs> like three people, you guys are really amazing. Wow. No, seriously, though, I mean, have you guys ever, uh, raise your hands, have you guys ever had a point in your life where you've been completely blown away by your own weakness? I can't believe, thank you, that's, that's honesty that I'm looking for tonight. Uh, I'm trying to be really honest with you guys, so I'm going to back. Um, uh, it, it's a reality we all have to face. Uh, there's those days, there's those weeks, there's those months. For some of us, there's our entire life where we're constantly reminded every day and faced with the reality of our weakness. Uh, that we cannot seem to do things right. That we cannot seem to make the right decisions. I can't believe I did that again. I can't believe I sinned against God in that same area again, even as a Christian. I can't believe that I let her down, let him down. I can't believe that I failed. I can't believe that I lost my job. I can't believe whatever it is, fill in the blank. But we're faced with our weakness all the time. It's a reality that we have to face, right? Um, we don't just see it in ourselves. We see it in the world around us, right? We're faced every day when we look at the news. We see horrific things going on. Uh, women that are being mistreated, abused, and raped. Babies that are being um, 
literally murdered in their mother's womb, right, through abortion and, and, and people in Africa that are literally wiping each other out in the entire, of, entire tribes just because of their race, just because of the hatred that they have for each other, um, bombings and murders, and so many things that take place and aren't dealt with because of man's inability to do what's right, because of man's weakness, because of man's fallenness. is something we all deal with, we all have to see, we all have to struggle with. Now, the world's view, the, the secular worldview of weakness is a little different than Christianity's, you know that? The secular worldview of, of uh, weakness is that we're actually on the inside strong. And that if we look within, it's like Buddhism, that's what Buddhism says. We look within and focus within and we, we meditate and find the inner self, we're going to find strength. Well, Christianity is sort of the opposite, right? We know the deeper we go into our heart, the deeper we go into our person, the more fallenness and weakness that we find. That's Christianity. We understand that. As Christians, we also understand the origin of weakness, right? We understand why we have to deal with this weak body, with this weak will, with constantly failing and messing up. It goes back to Adam, right, in the garden. Okay, you guys know this. Theologically, it starts with Adam. Now, what Adam did in the garden wasn't just to be the first man to sin, wasn't just to be the first one to choose his own will over God, but what he also did was he chose or he allowed his weakness to take control. He didn't lead his wife. He didn't do what he was supposed to do. He didn't say, uh, I'm going to call out the devil for his lies and do what I know God said and tell my wife that we're not going to eat that fruit. But he actually allowed weakness to take over. And because of that, now we all get to deal with our weakness as well, right, through the fall. So thanks a lot, Adam. Uh, it continues on from there, right? We see it all throughout biblical history. We don't have to look far to understand the doctrine of the weakness of men. We see it over and over and over again. We see it through the kings. We see it through David, even great and mighty David, who could not control himself when he saw Bathsheba from the, the top of the ceiling. His weakness took over, and he even failed one of the greatest kings that we've ever that Israel's ever had, right? Um, Solomon gave into weakness. Abraham gave into weakness, lying about his wife, saying that she was his sister. Um, time and time again, Israel falls away, worships other gods. God delivers them. They worship other gods again. The weakness of men, we don't have to go very far to see it. We don't have to look very hard. We don't have to look past ourselves, to be honest, to remember and realize how weak and frail and how many times that we screw up. So it's really something we all have to deal with. So now in our text tonight, and I say all of that for a reason, in our text tonight, Jesus deals with the weakness of his disciples in a very interesting way. So Mark chapter 14 and verse 26 when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now, a little bit of context. They just finished the Passover meal. If you guys were here, I think it was a couple weeks ago. Um, they had just had the Passover meal together where Jesus actually instated a new meaning to um, the blood, to, I'm sorry, to the wine, to the bread. He said, this is my body, this is my blood. And in sharing that, he actually, entered, uh, he actually taught the disciples of a new covenant and showed them what it was going to be to actually uh, walk with Jesus through that. Uh, after that, they sing a psalm, and now they're heading out of Jerusalem into the Mount of Olives. Now, in Israel, <clears throat> the Mount of Olives is just on the outside, but it is outside of the city walls. And what it basically is, is it's a hill that's full of olive trees. It's sort of like an orchard or a garden. Um, some of you guys may even know it as the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus goes out to spend his final time, his final few hours before he goes to the cross. He has to work through some things. He knows he needs to spend time with, with his disciples in prayer. He has some, some serious emotional things he has to work through in the garden. So he goes out to this quiet place. And when they get there, 
uh, looking at verse 27, Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Okay, so this is great, right? Uh, In a matter of hours, Jesus is gonna go to the cross, okay? Uh, The craziest thing ever. The disciples have no idea the magnitude of what's coming and what's about to befall them. And so Jesus grabs his guys and he's got, let's huddle up really quick. I gotta give you guys an encouraging word. Speak into your lives. I gotta give you something to kind of get you through like a coach would do, right? So he huddles up his guys. He says, listen up, guys. You're all gonna fail me. (laughs) You guys are all gonna fall away. You're all going to deny me Reject me, act like you don't know me in a matter of hours. How encouraging is that, right? <laughs> that's, that's the pep talk we needed, Jesus. Thank you. I mean, think about the magnitude of what Jesus is saying here. These are his best friends. These are his disciples, the men that have been around him for three years now. And they've done everything with him. And they've, they've constantly talked about how they're going to follow him to the end. And they're going to, to give of themselves even unto death, right? They've claimed that. They said that they're going to do that. And now, hours before Jesus actually goes to the cross, he says, you guys are all going to fall away. The father is going gonna, is gonna to strike the shepherd and the sheep are going to scatter, quoting the Psalms. How depressing is that? How discouraging is that for these disciples? I mean, this is crazy. Every single one of you is going to deny me. Not just a few of you. All of you are going to fail. Your weakness is going to consume you in a matter of hours. You're going to completely deny me. Now, the word that he uses there, and I'm going to say it wrong because I'm not a Greek scholar, but scandalazion. It sounds a little more Italian probably, but that's the Greek word when he says fall away. And we get the word scandalized from that. They were scandalized by what Jesus is saying. They were going to be so scandalized by the fact, I'm sorry, but what what, what was going to be required of them. The cost of discipleship in that moment that was to come was going to be too high. Jesus says you're going to be scandalized by what is going to be required of you. The actual cost of what it's going to look like to follow me to death. You guys cannot do it. You're going to fail. You're going to mess it up. Now listen, guys, we have to understand this. What Jesus is saying here is not just exclusive to these disciples. It's for every one of us. Guys, we are all going to fail, okay? Now, I'm not talking about you did fail and now that you're a Christian, that's gone. No, and I'm not talking about, no, I'm talking about you will fail as a Christian. Sam, that's so depressing. <laughs> that's so discouraging, You will fail. This is what Jesus is saying here. You're not going to be able to cut it. The cost of discipleship is too high for you. You won't be able to do it. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying to you. He's saying to me. He's saying to the disciples. So then Peter, verse 29. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. Got to love Peter's arrogance there, right? You can kind of see him just kind of puffing his chest out a little bit. Like, these guys... I could totally see them denying you, rejecting you, walking away, but I'm not going to do it. I'm Peter. I mean, I, I got it. I got it, Jesus. I'm going with you all the way. These guys will deny you. Yeah, whatever. They're a bunch of bums. But me, I'm going all the way. That's what Peter's basically saying. And Jesus says to him, he's completely straightforward, completely blunt. Truly, I tell you in verse 30, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. So not only will you deny me, Peter, but you'll do it three times. Times Not something that just was an accident, not something that just happened and slipped out of your mouth, but no, intentionally, over and over, three times, you will allow your weakness to rule your decisions and you'll fail. You're going to fail me, Peter. 
All the disciples agree, verse 31, but he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you, Peter says. He has such confidence, right, or arrogance. They all said the same, so all the disciples agree. We're not going to fail you. We're going to do it. We're going to make it all the way, Jesus. Whatever you're going through, we're going there too. We're going to bear the same cross. Whatever it is that you're going to, that's going to happen to you, we're there. Now, <laughs> the question here is not if Peter will fail, right? It's when Peter will fail given the right circumstances. It's not if Peter will fail, it's when Peter will fail given the right circumstances. There's a really good quote out of a commentary I found. It says, it is of no use to protest that we have not committed the sins we self-righteously condemn in others. The question is not what sins we have committed as much as what sins we would commit were we faced with the serious pressure, temptation, opportunity, and threat alone. What that basically is saying there is that it wasn't a matter, again, it wasn't a matter of if Peter would deny. It was a matter of what would be the right circumstances that Peter will fail. That's really all it is. Guys, I want, I want, I want to convict you on something really quick here. Some of us in this room feel pretty good about ourselves because we've separated ourselves from some sinful things, okay? And, and we feel like we, we're getting more holy, which it's a good thing to separate ourselves from the world, right? But the question you have to ask yourself isn't just what am I not doing? It's what, what I, am I capable of doing? What would I be doing if I was placed in the situation that others are placed in? If I was given opportunity to do that sin and that no one would know about it and I could get away with it, would you do it? If you were given opportunities to do that, would you do it? If you had someone holding a gun to your head and said, deny Jesus, would you deny Jesus? How can we know, right? So we can't go on boasting for things that we're not doing when in reality, it's by God's grace that maybe we're in a place where we aren't tempted by certain things. What I'm trying to really kind of drive home here, guys, is that we're all so equally weak. And Peter thought that he would never be susceptible to that. But it wasn't a matter of if, it was a matter of what the circumstances would cause Peter's weakness to shine. It was a matter of what circumstances would cause Peter's weakness to shine, to show that he couldn't do it, that he couldn't follow Jesus. He couldn't drink the same cup that Jesus drank. It wasn't possible. So if you're ever feeling like you're feeling pretty good about yourself and kind of self-righteous or or judging someone else for their sin in in a way that's unhealthy or putting yourself above them, just think about what would you do if you were in a different circumstance? (laughs) Because you probably would do or be susceptible to those same things. So I can look at Peter and say, what a bum. I can't believe he denied Jesus, as we'll see. But at the same time, if I was in that same circumstance, what would I do, right? So we're going to skip ahead here into verse 66, and this isn't the text for tonight. I just want us to look at the actual denial of Peter, because Jesus prophesies it, and then in a matter of hours later, it actually happens. So in our chapter 14, starting in verse 66, and as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. Okay, servant girl, okay, picture, teenage girl, okay, not a big dude with a beard and a sword, Um, Not some scary, you know, like, no, this is a teenage, most likely a teenage servant girl of the high priest. And verse 67, seeing Peter warning himself, warming himself. So now Jesus is being questioned by the high priests. Um, He's being beaten by the Romans now. Things are heating up. Things are getting tense. And Peter is trying to get away as far away as he can from all of the tenseness that's going on between Jesus And he's warming himself by the fire, just trying to to keep his distance, sort of watching what's going on. And this girl comes up to him in verse 68, or in verse 67, seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, 
you also were the Nazarene Jesus. You're the one that was with Jesus. You're from Nazareth. I know you, right? Verse 68, but he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. Okay, so he's lying. He's denying Jesus, his Lord, his Savior, the first time. And he went out into the gateway and the rooster crowed. He doesn't get it yet, though. And the servant girl saw him again and began to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. She's intense. She's really trying to point him out. Now, Jesus, you know the feeling, right? When you don't want to be sucked into a situation and you're feeling yourself getting sucked into the situation. Peter does not want to be uh, in the limelight like Jesus is. He wants to be separated. That's why he's back here by the fire. He doesn't want the heat that Jesus is getting. He doesn't want the beating that Jesus is getting. Okay, And here comes this girl, and she starts illuminating who he really is. And his immediate reaction is to shut her up. Don't pull attention to me. Don't get the Roman guards looking at me. I don't want the attention. I don't want the focus. No, I don't know what you're talking about, so he lies. He denies. I'm not with him. I don't know what you're saying. Again, he denied, and after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter the third time, certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. Now, he's so desperate at this point. Peter is so desperate to get out of the situation that he's in. He doesn't care or isn't thinking about the long term of of what he's doing. He isn't thinking about his love for Jesus. All he's thinking about is, I want out of this situation, and I'll do whatever it takes in the moment to get out of the situation. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. He's using four-letter words now, making them think, right, that he has nothing to do with Jesus, even willing to cuss and to swear in a way to make them think that he has nothing to do with them. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time, and it clicks. He gets it. He remembers. Hours prior, Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. The light bulb goes on. He realizes what he did. He's realizing what he's done. His confidence is gone. His arrogance is gone. Like a deflated balloon, it's gone, right? And he weeps and he has sorrow. His heart has dropped into his guts. He can't believe that he did it. He remembers the words of his Savior. And what Jesus, or I'm sorry, what Peter is faced with there, guys, listen, what Peter's faced with there is the reality of his weakness. He can't even believe his own weakness. He was so confident. No, Jesus, I'll never deny you. That's not going to happen. <laughs> and then, sure enough, in a matter of hours, he realizes how weak he really is and that Jesus knew it all along. Now, I want to spend the remainder of our time, we're going to continue looking through some, some more texts as well, but talking about the purpose of weakness. Okay, now, I don't know about you guys, and maybe you already know the answer, but I don't know about you guys, but when I read this text, my questions were, why do we have to deal with weakness? Why does Peter have to deal with his weakness coming out in a moment where Jesus needed him, in a moment where he could have stood up and said, yes, I'm with him? What purpose does my weakness have? That's the questions that came to my mind. It doesn't help me to be more productive in the kingdom, right? Me being a screw-up, being a failure, and constantly being reminded of how weak I am doesn't help God's kingdom. It just makes me screw more things up. Why doesn't God just give us perfection and salvation? That'd be easier. (laughs) That'd be better. Why do we have to have weakness? Why do we have to struggle in the way that we struggle as Christians? Well, first of all, 
uh, two things. We're, we're going we're to kind of unpack each one. The, f- the first reason, uh, if you're taking notes, the first reason is that we might trust the power of God. The first reason for our weakness, the first reason that God allows weakness in the life of the believer is that we might trust the power of God. Now, as Christians, we hate the idea of our weakness, okay? I just want to get really honest and real in here for for a second, okay? Um, We hate the idea of our weakness. Um, We have this crazy thought that when we get saved, that we're not supposed to be weak anymore. Okay? Uh, we have this crazy thinking, this theology that, that's in our minds from whatever that makes us think that we cannot struggle, that we cannot be weak, that we cannot be failures and be Christians. So what that produces is a lot of people that think, well, I probably wasn't saved. <laughs> I think I just got saved because I, I, I sinned too much and screwed up too much prior to this moment to, to possibly have been a Christian. So I, th- I think I need to get baptized again or maybe get baptized again. Uh, whatever it is, Christians hate the fact and the reality that, that, that our weakness carries into our Christian experience. That once we get saved, we're still going to struggle with weakness. We're still going to have the same inclinations. Now, the Holy Spirit, yes, comes in and gives us new desires over time, but we're still weak and we're still going to fail. And we don't like this. We don't like thinking about this. Now, a little example here for you guys as to why we think this way. Okay? And, and not the only reason as to why we think this way, but I think one of the reasons as to why we think this way. So I was given this this morning by uh, Sid and Holly. Uh, this is the Bible story. Okay? I don't know who puts it out. Um, it's, I thought maybe it was like the Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons, but it's not. It's just some Christian thing. It's from the 70s. Okay? It's super dated. Um, and she was showing me this this morning. And I opened the first page. Jesse, you want to put that up for, for me? I copied it so you guys can see. Look at this. I don't know if you can read that or not, but that's kind of, you got Mormon Jesus there and some really, really, you know, white kids, um, not politically correct at all. Nowadays, we'd have like, you know, more ethnicity there. Um, anyways, listen to this. It's talking about the story about when Jesus picks up one of the kids and says, you know, have faith like this kid. Uh, in this Bible thing, it says, he may have been four, he may have been five, I don't know, nobody knows. His name may have been Amos or Enoch or Benjamin. Again, I don't know, nobody knows. But for one brief hour, he was the most favored boy in all the world. Jesus picked him out of a crowd of children and told everybody around to become like this little boy, or they would never enter into his kingdom of love. Now listen, this is where it gets good. What a dear, sweet boy he must have been, so kind and loving and obedient. The goodness in his heart must have been shining from his face, and Jesus saw it. He couldn't have been one of the rough kind, rushing around, shouting and whistling and making nuisance of himself. He couldn't have been shoving other boys or teasing the little girls and making them cry. No, he was just standing there quietly and respectfully looking up at Jesus with wide open eyes. Are you kidding me? I mean, you guys should have like buzzers going. If you've been taught well, that is such a false gospel. Yeah, Jesus went over and picked up this little boy because he was the best boy. Because he was a good boy. He didn't run around and pick on his sister and stick his gum under the table. Um, he didn't throw his food to the dog. He was a good and a perfect boy. So it makes sense that Jesus would love him. Okay, a couple pages over. I'm like, I'm going to keep reading here. Now we have the story of the rich young ruler. You guys know this story? Okay. I'm going to break into here the story. Master, replied the youth eagerly, all these if I observe from my youth. Clearly, this fine lad had loved God and wanted to do right. As a child, he had memorized the Ten Commandments, and he still knew them by heart. They were the guiding rules of his life. Now listen. 
No wonder that Jesus beholding him loved him. Jesus saw all the good in him and all the good he might do in his days to come. This noble youth could become a great church leader. So that's why Jesus loved, in case you guys were wondering, that's why Jesus loved the rich young ruler, because he was such a good guy. I just can't believe that. Like, it's insane. But the reality is, is that's probably on the shelf of a lot, or had been on the shelf of a ton, maybe thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands. And it's not limited to that book. My wife and I went to Barnes & Noble to try to find a stinking Christmas story for my daughter so I could tell her about Jesus and why he came into this earth. And all I could find was Jesus came in so we could be good friends with each other and love people. Okay? (laughs) There's nothing in there about anything about what Jesus really came into this world to do. What is going, this is what is shaping, what is ingrained in us in so many ways. Most of us in this room probably are church to some degree. Maybe you went to Sunday school, and maybe you went to a really good church that preached the gospel, but the odds are you probably at some point took in garbage like that. And that is buried in you. It's buried in me. And the reason why we have such a hard time with our weakness as Christians is because we think Jesus is, gonna, is not going to pick me up. Because I'm not that kid. I'm the one running around scuffing my knees. I'm the one bumping into the walls and pushing my sister over. That's me. I'm the one screwing it up. I'm the weak one. I'm not the rich young ruler that did all the things right and Jesus loved him because he was good. This is legalism at its core and it's in our DNA in America. And this is what we're up against. Okay, so... Back to my point that we might trust the power of God is why we've been given weakness. We don't allow our weakness to let us trust the power of God. All we do is we shove it down. We hide it. Because if anyone sees that I'm weak post-salvation, then they're not going to think I'm really a Christian or maybe God doesn't really love me or because it's all performance-based, it's all works-based, it's a false gospel, but it's ingrained in so many people. And that's what, we th- that's what people think. That's what people think that Christianity is. Our weakness, our weakness is not, we, we are just as weak as the non-believers. Can I say that? We are. Okay, we're just as weak. We're susceptible to the same sins, the same things as the non-believers. The only difference is our understanding of the grace of God. That's the only difference. And I'm getting ahead of myself here. Now, how did Paul deal with his weakness? In 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10, just you got that up there? This is cool. Is that the right one? Yeah. Okay. Um, so to keep me from becoming conceited, says Paul, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh. Paul is faced right now with his weakness. He has this thorn in the flesh. We don't know what it is. Specifically, people debate about it. But he has something that is causing him great grief and pain, and it's causing him to, to, to feel and realize and be remembered daily of his weakness and his frailty. He says, a messenger of Satan has harassed me to keep me from becoming conceited. Verse 8, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Paul says, take away my weakness. This thorn is too much for me. But he said to me, listen, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in what? Weakness. My power is made perfect in what? Weakness. My power is made perfect in what? Okay, <laughs> this is good news for me and you. 
Okay, Paul says that, read on, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me for the sake of Christ, then I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul says, it's in my weakness, it's in my thorn, it's in my frailty that God's power is able to come in and actually be seen. How is someone going to see the power of God in your life when they think that you are perfect and you know that you're not? (laughs) How do you expect your neighbor to understand that through weakness there is grace for him if no one knows that you have weakness? We should be boasting in our weakness because it allows God's power to be manifest in our life so people can actually see the saving grace of God and how he can take nothing and make it something, right? We should be boasting in our weakness, not boasting in a way that says, yeah, I sinned, what about it? No, boasting in a way that says God's grace is so good that he would love me even in this state, even though I struggle with this thing. Now, this is counterintuitive, isn't it? It's completely counterintuitive. When I'm weak, then I'm strong. In my weakness, I mean, that doesn't make any sense. But in the world of God, in the gospel, it makes complete sense. Because the reality is that we have no strength. That we are completely weak and completely at the mercy of God. And it's only when we fully recognize that and realize that and proclaim that, that we can actually see that it's only his power that does anything in our life of good. The only reason I do anything good is because of God's power, because of God's grace. I get zero credit for it. Zilch. None. It's all him. Look at verse 32 of our text. They went to a place called Gethsemane. Now we get to see Jesus, our Lord, experience weakness. We looked at Paul, now let's look at Jesus. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. He said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. We'll come back to that. And he came and found them sleeping. Hey, talk about weakness. (laughs) Jesus is like, I am, what does he say? What does he say? I'm, I'm, I'm sorrowful even unto death. Okay? If my wife came up to me and said, I'm so sorrowful, I might go kill myself. And then I went and fell asleep on the couch. What is wrong with me, right? I mean, that's weakness. Now, when my wife was going through labor, she started at 10. And for her, it was probably the worst pain she's ever experienced. And I'm not going to lie, between counting contractions, I was nodding off. And I was trying really hard to stay awake. My weakness was taking over, seriously. But come on, I mean, Jesus is like, I am sorrowful unto death. And you guys cannot stay awake for me? You're sleeping already? He said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. It's a good verse on my life. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping. Okay, second time. He comes, he finds them sleeping again, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. They don't know what to say. <laughs> we're just weak, Jesus. Can't keep our eyes open. 
And he came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed at the hands of the sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Okay, now we could go into the weakness of men there that keep falling asleep, but I don't want to focus on that. What I want to focus on is the weakness of Jesus here. Okay, Jesus, fully God, has become man, incarnate, fully God, fully man. And as such, he is not sinful, but he is experiencing the physical and emotional weakness of a man. Understand that? That's important because that means he's our high priest that can relate with us because he understands what it is to experience weakness and emotion, okay? But Jesus is literally sweating drops of blood in the garden. He's so, he's so scared and terrified of the wrath of God that is going to befall him as, he, as he's poured out on all sin of all men, right? And he's experiencing extreme weakness. Now, Through this weakness, though, listen to the conversation Jesus has. He says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Now, does that sound a little bit like what Paul was just saying? Father, please, take away my weakness. I can't handle this anymore. It's too much. I can't do it. But what does Jesus say? Not your will, but my will. And then Jesus submitted all the way to the cross. He trusted the Father, and he did it for the joy that was set before him, right? My point is that through weakness, Jesus modeled what it looks like to submit to the greatness and the power of God. And it's through our weakness that we understand and are completely, we have to have the power of God. That's it. That's all that we have. It's through our weakness that we get that. Now, lastly, the second reason for our weakness, and this one, this is exciting. The second reason for our weakness is that we might know the grace of God that we might know the grace of God. So firstly, that we might know his power. And secondly, that we might know his grace. I think this is the greatest and most important reason why we experience the weakness that we experience. I really do. Now, I want to ask the question, what is the difference between Peter and Judas? It seems out of right field, but you'll get it. Um, what is the difference between Peter and Judas? This was the first question I had when I looked at this text. Okay, um, a couple weeks ago, we looked at like, when, when Jesus called out Judas and said, you're going to betray me. Uh, we know the story. Jesus goes and or Judas goes and sells out Jesus. Wow, Judas goes and sells out Jesus, and then in a matter of hours, he's hung himself. Right? He's he's gone and committed suicide because he can't handle the the, the weight, the stress of his weakness. He can't handle it. And Peter almost does exactly the same thing. He fails Jesus as well. They have many similarities. Peter and Judas. Uh, they both confessed faith in Jesus. They both heard his teachings. They both performed miracles. Uh, They both were loved by Jesus. He called them both uh, devils at one point, if you remember that. Um, They they were both friends of his. He called them both friends. And they both denied and betrayed and rejected Jesus. What's the difference? Why is Peter the apostle of the early church? Why is Peter the leader, literally, of the early church? And today we still have his, his, his epistles and we still have the scripture about him. And yet Judas... We don't even want to name our kid Judas. Do you know any Judases? No. Like, we want to distance ourselves completely from Judas. What was the difference between Judas and Peter? It was really simple. I mean, the, sim- the simplest version of it is that Peter was saved and Judas wasn't. But what does it mean to be saved, right? Uh, the, the, the reality, the difference between the two is found in the reaction, listen, to the reaction to their weakness and failure. That's all. 
They both failed. They both screwed up. They both did the wrong thing. But the only difference is that Peter knew how to deal with his failure, and Judas did not. Judas could not deal with his failure. He was so sorrowful. He was so upset about what he had done and and, and the, the, the magnitude and the depth of his weakness that he went and took his own life. And Peter, though he was sorrowful, Peter understood the grace of God. That was the only difference. Now listen, the only difference, apart from, I know, the Holy Spirit and and rebirth, but the only difference between you and the non-believer is that you understand the grace of God. You are not more holy. You are not more righteous. You are not stronger. You don't have more faith. You don't have more resolve. You just understand the grace of God. That is what it is to be a Christian, to simply understand the grace of God. Of God. That was the difference between Peter and Judas. Judas did not understand the grace of God, so he took his life. And Peter did. Okay? Peter did. Now, this is kind of exciting. Turn your Bibles to 2 Peter 3.18. You can fast forward the clock here in Peter's life. Okay? We go from rejected, you know, Peter that rejected Jesus and screwed up. Some years later, we, have, we find a new Peter. We find an older Peter. We find a more experienced Peter, a more humble Peter, a Peter that has been through more in life. And I want to read his last words. His last words. 2 Peter 3.18. He says this. But grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. So Peter, the apostle, the leader of the early church, his last words to the church are this. But grow in grace. Okay? It's not grow in holiness, though that's important. It's not grow in theology and, and knowledge and, and doctrine. It's not grow in your ability to work in the spiritual gifts. It's not grow as a, a father or a mother, although that's all important and that's all good. But no, his last words are this, grow in grace. How do you grow in grace? What does that mean? What does that look like? It's the most counterintuitive thing ever to think about. Growing, because growing in grace, actually, you don't actually grow. <laughs> That's, go with me on this. Growing in grace is not you growing. It's an understanding. Growing in grace is not that I'm getting better or stronger. Growing in grace is simply that my eyes are being opened more to the fullness of God's grace. And guess how that happens? Through weakness. Through failure. Through screwing it up time and time again and falling on your face and repenting and, and, and falling and being forced to, 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 to take the grace of God and say, this is all I have. That only happened to Peter. Peter can only come to this sanctified last words that he gives, these wise last words, because he was a man that screwed up time and time and time again. The people that understand the most about the grace of God are the people that have received it the most and have experienced the most failures. He who has been forgiven much, what? Loves much, right? This is what makes us believers. It's not that we're stronger. It's not that Peter was better than Judas. It's simply that Peter understood the grace of God for him and his failure and his weakness. That's all. That's the difference. One more text and we'll be done. Ephesians 3.10, it should be up there. This is such a cool verse. 
Paul the Apostle says this. He says, so that, and he's talking about salvation. He's talking about the reason for salvation in Ephesians. He's talking about how God um, saves and what he does in the believer's life. And then he says, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. You're saying, okay, what does that mean? This is so cool, okay? The reason for us, the reason for salvation, I believe, okay, is simply that we could know the fullness of God's attributes. Do you guys understand that we are the only ones that will ever understand fully the grace of God? The angels will not know, will not understand the grace of God. Because we've been forgiven, because we've been redeemed, because we've been part of this redemption story where Jesus has purchased us and given us newness of life and pulled us out of our muck and given us an identity, we now understand an attribute of God that had not been understood before by any creation, I truly believe. And this is what Paul's saying here, that through the church, that through the church, we will understand the manifold wisdom, the fullness of God's attributes, of his wisdom, that he's not only holy, that he's not only righteous. The angels understand that. Let me tell you what. The angels understand his power. They understand his strength. They understand his might, his holiness. But we understand his grace. And we've been given the privilege of understanding an attribute of God that I believe outside of the Trinity has never been understood before. And that is his grace, that he is loving, that he is merciful. So as mad and as annoying as I get at my weakness, it's through my weakness that I'm able to experience and understand an attribute of God that cannot be understood outside of grace. Amen? Isn't that good news? So what seems to be depressing, hey, you guys are gonna go out and screw it all up, is actually really good. And here's why, here's the good news. Jesus knew they were gonna screw it up. You know that? He knew it. He knew they were gonna blow it completely. They knew they were gonna fall on their face and that's what he told them. But isn't that encouraging that he knew? Jesus wasn't shocked. He wasn't up on the cross like, oh, my guys are lame. I can't believe they all denied me. No, he knew they were going to do that. He knew their weakness. And guess what? It didn't change a thing in his plan, did it? No. The church is still here. Here we are, right? The disciples made it. They received the Holy Spirit. Their ministry took place. The church is being built. God's kingdom is still coming and is still being built, right? He knows you're going to fail. He knows I'm going to fail. Not just before I get saved, all through my salvation, all through my sanctification, I am going to fail. And Jesus knows it, and he's going to use it for his glory that I might understand his glorious grace. Amen? All right. Would you guys stand real quick? So, Father, tonight we just thank you so much, Lord, for our weakness. Uh, we boast in it, God. We boast in our shortcomings and our, and our failings, Lord, not because it allows us to get away with anything or allows us to live in sin, Lord, but simply because it magnifies what you've done for us, Lord. It magnifies the greatness of your glory, the greatness of your patience, the greatness of your grace in our life. Thank you, Jesus, for sharing an attribute of the Father through our weakness that no one has ever been able to see. Thank you for your grace, Father. Thank you that your grace is greater than our weakness. And thank you that through our weakness, we understand your grace. 
pray for this church tonight, for you would bless us as we go. Help us, Lord, to walk humbly, Lord, not puffed up, not thinking of ourselves as greater than we are, Lord, but help us to walk humbly before our God, understanding that we are only alive, only here by your pure and holy grace, Lord. So thank you, Jesus, for what you did for us. In your precious name, amen. God bless you guys. Have a great night.